live across Australia on SEN Track. Giddy up with Gareth Hall. Seventeenth of January, we're live from Melbourne this morning. Gareth Hall with you. It's a big good morning to you listening on your local SEN dial right across the country. And a big hello to you wherever you may be listening on the SEN app. Massey show coming your way. The Wednesday debate. Bren O'Brien from thestraight.com.au will be joining us. The boy from Tassie, along with Mickey Gannon, as we debate some of the big issues in the sport of racing. We'll find you plenty of winners today across the three codes with bag of tips just after nine fifteen. A big trial time today is one of my favourite times. I think when it comes to trials and you don't win any money from trials, or you can in a way because you can do your homework and try and identify horses. But I think the August, late July trial sets are my favourite as the horses head into the spring. And about this time of the year, I also look forward to them because a lot of the two-year-olds are getting ready um, and some of the better two-year-olds that even though that they've been unraced that we can look forward to that are well in the market for a golden slipper. And I guess at the start or the end of the spring when you see some of those, the, the two-year-olds stepping out for the first time as well. But Dean Watling's been all over these trials and some of the biggest names as well are headed back to the trials ahead of an autumn campaign or a summer slash autumn campaign. So we've got trial time with Dean Watling. Looking forward to that. And uh, we'll try and find you a few winners tonight as well at Happy Valley there at Hong Kong. This is for Bet365, the world's favourite online betting brand. What's gambling really costing you? For free and confidential support, visit gamblinghelponline.org.au. It's five minutes past eight. It's great to be with you on this Wednesday. Let's get stuck into our debate. On Giddy Up, it's time for the debate. The man from the straight.com.au, Brett O'Brien, hello to you. Nice to join you, Gareth. What a wonderful, beautiful day down here in Tassie. A little bit of light rain, but uh, yeah, nice to have a bit of respite from the heat. Yes, God's country. I don't know how you handled the heat there in, on the Gold Coast, Brenny boy. I tell you what, I know how you handled it. Every time I walked around a, a local watering hole on the Gold Coast, there was Bren with Timmy Rowe as well from the, um, the ANZ publication. Yeah, you boys never missed. I don't know how you actually got anything to, to print. Plenty of things to talk about. I mean, that's the truth. You've got to, got to get out and talk to the <laughs> yes. people and have a bit of a chat to them. And, and uh, yeah, no, there was, uh, it's certainly a, a big week of uh, getting around and, yeah, seeing what's going on, taking the temperature of the industry, as we, as we like to say. I'll get to you in, in a minute, Mickey. But, Brent, how did you, like, how did you go with your colleagues that you're great mates with and you work with a lot of them over the years and all that, but now you've just shaken up the, the publication world, the, the media landscape in a way? I wouldn't get too carried away. Uh, <laughs> I think there's a bit of professional respect there anyway. And yeah. uh, a few of those guys sort of, yeah, I mean, it's great to sort of be amongst those guys and discuss things. This is how we, this is how you develop ideas and thoughts. You talk to different yeah. people, not only people within the industry, but people who also work for rival publications and talk through them. And it's, you know, maintaining relationships with them is just as important. And, uh, yeah, they're keen, just as keen to beat me to a story as I am to beat them to a story, and that's how it works. So right. it's uh, no, it was a very enjoyable week and a good week just to sort of, I guess, refresh the mind as to all the people that you know, make up this very wonderful industry that we're in. In the broadcast um, landscape, there's no respect there. Oh, I've got no respect for my <laughs> rivals at all. I'm only joking, Steri. Um, Mickey Gannon, hello to you, the man from The Great Tip Off. Yes, G Hall. Good morning. Good morning, Brent. Great, great work with your publication. And if you don't like warm weather, you wouldn't like where I am this morning. You're uh, shivering up here in Early Beach. It's about thirty-three, and it's about ninety percent humidity. G Hall, it's fantastic. I look like you were shivering there on the Zoom. There, and we'll be showing the Zoom. We'll be we've got a YouTube channel now on SEN Track. So this is I would have done my show. hair if I had have known. Well, yeah. Well, I, <laughs> I've shaved my hair these days, so I've gone there. So you might need to follow. You look suit. fast, G. Yeah, you look fast. Um, let's get stuck into our topics. And the first one is, and when you have a look at the ratings here, Mickey Gannon, is Storm Boy destined for greatness? Dan O'Sullivan produced his numbers. Dominic Byrne, two of the most respected form analysts, ratings man in the game, both said that he delivered a performance of a, a superstar there on Saturday. He ran time at both ends. He's got the making of a horse that could be something else. And, of course, he's got to go and do it now out of restricted racing in a way. Magic Millions is only for the horses that were purchased at that sale. So, um, But it doesn't matter if he's in a restricted race or not. The clock doesn't lie, Mickey Gaddon. And that was an extraordinary performance there on Saturday. Yeah, and then the ratings back it up, G. And I think restricted field or not, I think the ratings suggest that the time was really good. 
Um, it is difficult, isn't it? Because I think one thing that hasn't been mentioned is it is a new track they raced on, right? So it's very, very hard to quantify the data on a new track, a new surface, the way it goes. However, everything that we saw on Saturday suggested that um, he's well and truly up to winning a gold slipper, well and truly up to winning um, potentially the triple crown, I think was mentioned by um, Johnny O'Neill the other day. And look, he's a very, very classy animal. He's in the right stable. Can he go on with it? Sure. What I will say, geez, I think they've got another one, Shangri-La Express, that everyone's forgotten about. And then I do believe that you're pretty keen, Manos, to try it in the same race. Uh, the data suggests Shangri-La Express isn't too far off Storm Boys. So I think that they've probably kept one up their sleeve for the Slipper G. Yeah, you, know, one I, you know Adrian Bott really well. You, you, you're on like, it's body to you. So you talk to him on a regular basis. I've, I've interviewed him a few times. I can't get any indication who they think the best two-year-old is. And I... And I don't think they would know because a lot can change with these babies. But they're like, if you're, I don't know how, I was trying to describe it to a friend there the other day. So if you went through and had a look at the AFL draft, Brent, and you picked like for, for Waterhouse and Bot, it's a little bit different because as AFL, it was a bare comparison in a way. But say if you had the, the betting for the rising star in the AFL, they would have the seven of the top 10 players at the moment. It's been an extraordinary draft in a way for that organization, Brent. I haven't seen anything like it in my time. Apart yeah, from, I mean, say, like for harness are... racing with Emma Stewart, who have like a domination in juvenile racing, but not from a thoroughbred point of view. I mean, Gay's always had a tremendous record with her two-year-olds. I mean, it's no secret that she's had great success with them. And probably in the last few years, we haven't seen that as much. But certainly the shopping they did at the yearling sales last year has paid dividends already. And uh, yeah, I mean, Storm Boy's a fascinating horse. I mean, he's, he's actually yeah, physically a strong horse. I think that's the other thing we sort of notice about him. And I think there's a, I mean, there's a couple of other factors here from a, from a pedigree point of view, I suppose. He's by Justify, who's yes. a horse that famously never raced as a two-year-old. Uh, has already produced 16 stakes winning two-year-olds from 167 runners, which is like pretty remarkable stats for a, an early, you know, a sire that's relatively early in his um, in his uh, breeding career. So, I mean, there's a lot of upside in the horse. Um, he, I also look back further on his on his damn side of the pedigree. Sea Chain sits there, a mare that won seven group ones, and, and, and she won up to six years old. So there's some scope for this horse going forward. I think probably the only thing is, is, a horse peaking in January and peaking again in sort of March, April for a golden slipper and beyond that. It's a big ask. Horses yeah. have done it in the past. Some very good horses have done, done it in the past. Um, the question is, if, if there's something a little bit wrong or, or if he's just not quite coming up the way they, they hope, do they sit there and think, there's some also some very good races if he becomes a three-year-old as well? And um, do they apply the conservative path, which is tends to be the way we tend to play these days. They don't tend to over-race these two-year-olds, these star two-year-olds. And so it's, uh, yeah, and look... I wouldn't be taking the, the uh, short odds right now, no. the slipper, only for the fact that a lot can happen. The other thing too, I think the worst track we've seen him on is a soft six. We know what uh, golden slippers can be like. We know what Sydney autumns can be like. So I'll be waiting to race week to see what the track's like, making sure a storm boy's all in all in one piece um, and then working it out from there. But um, yeah, I, I, I mean, we're certain to see probably three or four gay waterhouse and Adrian bot horses up the top end of the order. It's a, it's a difficult predicament in a way for the Waterhouse and Bot Camp because he is by Justify, and you would you would imagine he might be a better Guineas horse than say Coolmore horse maybe in the spring. So it's an interesting dilemma that they have. But when he's flying at the moment, he's been clearly the best two-year-old. Why wouldn't you have a a, a, a throw at the stumps at a Golden Slipper? Because if he wins that, being by Justify, you can you can write your own check. So Storm Boy at three seventy-five. Shangri-La Express at eight dollars, Highness at thirteen. Well, Highness can't beat Storm Boy, you would imagine. Bodyguard no at seventeen that trialed nicely there the other day. Straight Charge at seventeen. Bold Bastille that was impressive there at Mooney Valley on Cox Plate Day and is the favourite for the Blue Diamond. It's at twenty-one dollars with Bet three six five for the Golden Slipper. Espinage is the forgotten horse at twenty to one. Manos is the horse that we're on that hasn't started yet. It's got to have another trial. <laughs> As Henry Field told me this time last week, Gareth, just just put a lid on it, son. There's a long way to go. <laughs> I've never seen a horse have more hype on it after two trials. And I was talking to James McDonald the other day. I said, Macca, that horse needs some blinkers. He goes, settle down, Gareth. Certainly <laughs> had the one trial. Amazing Eagle at 26, Sonode at 26, Coleman at $26. So, And Parkour, who we didn't get to see um, on Saturday after he was scratched on race day mornings at $26. So there's still a lot to play out, Mickey Gannon. Is there any value there? I know I asked you on Monday, but I don't – maybe Manos. I'll keep on backing him at 20 to 1. I've 
I've sort of got chips in at the moment. Yeah, I think a few weeks ago we talked about Shangri-La Express was around yeah. $15. We thought that was value. I think Storm Boy was $8 back then. So we've sort of shaped the market pretty well. I think Bulbaster was pretty good. I, my one query is I just want to see it, obviously, one more time. The Blue Diamonds, obviously, it's goal. It did win on speed at the Valley on a, on a day where that was the place to be. So uh, I don't know what beats it, G. What comes out of you know left field? Manos, maybe. Maybe Manos. Mm. But, uh, There's a long way to go. It, it's a long way to go, G, but I, I'd be very surprised if Shangri-La Express or Storm Boy, uh, either of those aren't winning the gold and silver. 0499736736 is a horse that I got stopped to about a few times there on the Magic Millions Complex. I don't know about you, Brent, but you get a few tips from time to time and some whispers. You hear a few whispers because the halves or the brothers are being sold or the sisters are being sold at the sales. A horse by the name of Aniva that Peter Moody and Kath Coleman paid a bit for. She was a filly that won at Caulfield. And she was four wide the trip for Damien Lane. She was impressive after she finished. I think she was placed on debut. So she might be a horse that you can follow. Um, she'll be aimed at um, the, the Blue Diamond. But she's $34 there for the Golden Slipper. Let's get to our second category today for our Wednesday debate. Do we need to make changes to the scheduling of the two-year-old races, Brent? You've done some numbers on this. So they scrapped a race from Caulfield today. They scrapped a race recently in Sydney. And it's not just in those two jurisdictions. So I was looking at Perth there the other day. They had a, a, a four-horse field, and all of those horses were trained by Ryan Hill. The field and ready in Queensland was an embarrassment before Christmas, and we're thinking, oh, maybe that was because everyone was holding off their horses for that debut race at the Magic Millions where you had the Phillies and the Colts and Geldings division. But they weren't, they weren't full fields either. So, Bren, there's a situation at the moment that we need to have a look at because at the moment there's – no one wants to race their two-year-olds or they're not, they're simply not ready yet. There's a bit of a myth in Australian racing that we're obsessed with two-year-olds, right? Yep. Across the world, people say, oh, two-year-old racing. Because the Golden Slipper, which is fair enough, the Golden Slipper changed the way that Australians race their horses, you know, when it, when it came about, you know, 70 years ago, whenever it was. Well, I mean, the statistics actually don't back that up. I mean, so if you look at right now, as we sit, there have been 449 two-year-old starters so far in Australia this racing season. Now, that's about 3.5% of that 2021 fall crop. So if you look at that, it's not a significant amount of horses. Now, comparing year on year, what we're seeing is the amount of two-year-old starters that have been at, is at the lowest point and has been in 30 years. And that's comparing season on season. So I think I was looking back, I, I looked back at an article I did a little while back, but um, and considering data from 2021, 22, I think it was, and it was 27, 21 juveniles took to the track. And it's a 45% reduction on, on what the Australian two-year-old numbers were in 93, 94, and a, a sort of 12% reduction on the numbers a decade ago. So I guess what we're seeing is a, a, a long-term decline. This is not a short-term pattern of the amount of two-year-old starters we've had. And if you look at across the world, the amount of horses that start as two-year-olds, you know, the stats just, you know, we're, we're nowhere near what the rest of the world is. You yeah. know, if you look at the amount of horses that are that that are actually you know, stepping out as two-year-olds, um, yeah, it, it's, it's well down on what Great Britain is well down on what the United States is and well, well down on what Japan do. So if you look at those other major jurisdictions, perhaps we're not the great two-year-old nation we think we are. And perhaps, you know, this year's probably a little bit of an exception. What I will say too is those taboo races did have, you know, there was two divisions of them. They're rich races and you have to start your horse in that race in its first start. So you're not going to have a runner this week. No. So all those Magic Millions horses that weren't going to make the Magic Millions and we're half going all right, we're all going to go towards those debut so, races. And so, I think that probably took a bit of steam out of the two-year-old campaign too. So when you have a look at the stats and compare us to the other parts of the world, I was I was blown away that the other jurisdictions in world racing run more two-year-old races than we do. I'm um, speaking of America Island and what was the other American Island and, and Britain, I think. Yeah, Japan as well. And Japan as well. So I was staggered with that. So is it because our sales are too early and our two-year-olds have to get ready before they're ready, if you know what I mean? Because January is an early sale, isn't it? And then we've got the February sale of the Classic and the Premier New Zealand later on this month, and then Easter in March slash April, depending on the time of the year. I think it's our racing program, Gareth. I, yeah. I think we don't have enough two-year-old racing uh, in terms of what's what's seen globally later in the season. So I, I think it's early in the season stuff is a bit of an anomaly. You can choose when you start your horse. That's up to that. But I think later in the season, there's not enough races. And what like places like Japan, who have mm. you know, 30% of their horses step out as two-year-olds compared to sort of 20% in Australia. Um, 
uh, you know, they have a lot of sort of 1600, 1800 meter races. They're trying to prepare horses to be classic horses. Now the breed's slightly different over there. So it's not a direct comparison, but even in, you know, even in Great Britain, they have a lot of two-year-old races later in the season. And they're, you know, some of their best two-year-old races sort of later in the season. I'm talking in our season, it'd be winter time. Now, whether you want, the difference is, do you want your two-year-olds running around on a wet track in May, yeah. June, July? That's, that's questionable. But I think that, that that's the, the fundamental difference is that we just don't have the depth of two-year-old racing. Every, uh, Japanese program, for example, like a, a metro program on a Saturday or Sunday would have, yeah, two or three two-year-old races, yeah. um, and we would lucky to have one. So, so um, yeah. So thinking outside of the square, this would never happen. Would it be better to have more money in a three-year-old Magic Millions race because it's in January, and not even think about those two-year-old races in January? Maybe have a two-year-old Magic Millions race in the and put it part of the put it a, put it as part of the, the like the Winter Carnival in Queensland. Yeah, I don't think that'll ever work because no. it won't work from a promotional point of view. The Magic Millions two-year-old classic is a promotional race by its nature, but getting those horses to come back. And there's enough horses to fill that fulfill that race. Yeah. The question is, there's enough horses to fill that race, a couple of debut races, all the other races that sort of go around that, whether there's enough horses to come through that. But I do think there is a growing conservatism in terms of the way people are racing their horses. They're definitely waiting longer. Um, there's a bit more patience. Now, I don't think it's a bad thing for racing, but unfortunately, it means for two-year-old racing, we have a few of those races being called off. And that's just, unfortunately, just the nature of the way things are working out. Uh, the program has to adapt accordingly. But there is uh, a broader concern. There are, you know, I've talked to a lot of breeders about this. And, of course, breeders want to see two-year-old racing because it gets the black type on the on the pedigree sooner. But there is a bro broader um, concern in the breeding industry. There's just not enough two-year-old racing, not enough country two-year-old racing. There's not enough horses, races for two-year-olds that are going well later in the season. And I think that's probably where the where the challenge needs to be found. Um, you know, Lord knows how they're going to work out that because, mm. as we know, Racing Australia can't work out you know, a lot of other things at the moment and, and the, the overall strategic programming of Australian two-year-old racing. So I think there's some, some challenges around there. And I think if we get a better path through these two-year-old races rather than sort of haphazard races coming through, I think it'll help people to plan their their horses runs through two to three runs as a two-year-old. Mickey Gannon, you're doing a little bit of work with some stables these days with your new business that you got up and running with Nicholas Ashburn. And obviously from a punter's point of view, how do you read the situation regarding the, the, the babies? You know, just got to do the planning a little bit better. But what I will say, Jeez, if you've gone to the effort to get your horse prepared for a race and you've nominated for a race and there's only three horses for the race, they should run that race because you've gone to all the effort. You've got your horse up. You've got your two-year-old up and ready. You run the race. What's going to happen in supply demand? Basically, there's going to be $55,000 to race for. And as a trainer, you go, oh, hang on a minute. We're not going to miss that opportunity next year because there's only four horses. We see this week in, week out with um, with planning. We, we go back and say, oh, look at last year's 2023's X race. Oh, they only had eight horses there. Let's send a horse here. You turn around, there's 42 nominations because everyone had the same idea. Run the race, let them get their prize money, mm. and it'll turn around, Jeff. Like they did in WA, like Ryan Hill had the full run of And I think that... If you're an owner and you had a two-year-old ready to race at Caulfield, and I can understand from a business point of view why they scrapped that race, but you are so annoyed and frustrated because you've paid all this money to get this horse ready to go, and these two-year-olds are fragile, and then you might be ready to run Wednesday, but you can't run, and then the next day you you got shin sore, or the next week you're shin sore, and you miss out on an opportunity, and you put your eggs in that basket to get your two-year-old ready to go up and up and going nice and early in the season to try and maximize its earning potential. But then you're getting punished because no one else wants to do it. Correct. Spot on. Absolutely spot on. And I think in reality, gee, what you're doing by canceling the race means that you're going to make these trainers and these owners more inclined to wait longer. Yeah. And you're not encouraging them to race their horses. And we want, we want to encourage them to race their horses. So let them race. Yeah. Very simple stuff, but we get too reactive not just in this game, just in general life these days. We get too reactive. We get too quick to hit the stop button. We should have let them run. It's an interesting debate to have. 0499 736 736 to join our conversation. Terrific prizes to give away, including a round of golf at the Mandalay Golf Course. You can take a mate with a cart and you can play on that beautiful golf course. And don't forget, if you're doing anything midweek and you're around the Melbourne area, it's about 45 minutes outside of the CBD. You can play a round of golf at Mandalay, which includes a drinks package and you get a cart for just $99. 8.23, let's take a break. We'll come back with plenty more. This is the Wednesday Debate with Brett O'Brien from thestraight.com.au and Mickey Gannon from The Great Tip-Off. Live across Australia on SEN Track. 
Giddy Up with Gareth Hall. Welcome back to Giddy Up this Wednesday morning. 0499 736 736 to join our conversation. 0499 736 736. Mickey Gannon from the Great Tip Off and Brett O'Brien from the straight.com.au with me for the Wednesday debate. The third topic we'll discuss here, Tiako Racing. And this is a crystal ball type of situation in five years' time. Who will be racing's biggest organisation or empire in this country? Now, having a look at the vendors, or I should say the leading um, buyers there at the Magic Million sale, Gay Waterhouse and Adrian Botter on fire at the moment, and they love this sale, so they purchased 23 horses. Kiramar Bloodstock purchased 24, and they purchased a few more outside of their their bloodstock organisation. But the big mover for mine was, well, Chris Waller and Guy Molcaster had 17 horses that they purchased. But David Ellis and Tiako Racing, they purchased 10, plus they purchased a few other horses with organisations like Coolmore. So, Brent O'Brien, how big of an impact is Tiako Racing going to have in this country in the next five years? Could we be talking about them like we talk about Godolphin or maybe even a year long, who are about to make a big splash, I think, from a racing point of view with the numbers that they've got. I think to say that they might get to get off on levels might be stretching a little bit too far, Gareth. Yep. But I think that they'll, they're obviously going to play a major role. That face it, Cranbourne's been a significant uh, investment and, and, and strategic change from them. You know, they've got Australia's best sprinter in Imperatries. You know, she's a superstar. And um, I guess we haven't seen that depth of horses coming from that Cranbourne base yet. Um, so far, but obviously they're buying a fair few mm. horses, spending a fair bit of money, including you know, a well-credentialed horse that they bought there at Magic Millions that's going to go to Cranbourne. Now, their base will still be primarily out of New Zealand, and so their best horses, a lot of their best horses will still come out of there. Um, so whether they, you know, obviously there'll be more Chiaco horses coming out. I think that's really important to sort of, you know, to see that the Tangerine will be definitely a stronger presence in Australia. I think Australia's too big a racing jurisdiction to be swamped by, you know, any one runner or sorry, any one sort of owner. So I don't know if we'll, we'll see like, oh, they're everywhere. Those colours are ubiquitous. I think, yeah, you know, we're more likely to see that from Yulong in the next few years than we are with Tiaka. Yulong will have a lot bigger numbers and obviously a yep. lot of those horses will be based in Australia. But we'll definitely see them at the pointy end. And David Ellis, what is interesting is that David Ellis's spending strategy has moved from being the leading buyer at Karaka for the last 18 years, which he may well be next week when he goes back there and starts putting his hand up again, um, to being a significant buyer in uh, in Australia. Before last week, he hadn't bought a million-dollar lot in Australia, in Australia. I think he bought two or three last week. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's a great time for the Australian bloodstock industry that's investing in those spaces, but I guess the challenge is going to be longer term. How does he make you know that big impression in Australia when it's so competitive? Uh, amongst those sort of, you know, those, those well-funded, you know, big operations like you know, Coolmore, Godolphin, Yulong, yeah. as we mentioned, and others as well. He, I but he teamed up with Coolmore, which I found interesting as well. So he's, when you think about Tiako Racing, you think about them just having their own syndication clients, a syndication business with their own clients, and they race in their own colours. But now they're teaming up with Coolmore. So you'll see Tiako Racing under their banner, representing other organisations like Coolmore, Mickey Gannon, which I found really interesting. I know that they do that a little bit with, say, a horse like Skewith with Mark Chittick and Waikato Stud. So they've done that in the past, but David Ellis has definitely made his move in Australian racing. And it's going to be interesting to see how they go. It is, Gene. I think they'll be a, uh, a punter's friend. Uh, that's for sure. I think they make very good business decisions. I think they're going to make very, very smart moves. But the uh, other names we mentioned before, not that they don't make smart moves, but they have bottomless amounts of money and they tend to um, throw their money around. But I don't mm. think David Ellis will be um, throwing his money around. I think he'll be making ruthless business decisions. And I think they'll be getting good quality horses, placing them very well. And I'll be very, very happy to... Uh, back plenty of his horses. The one part about their organisation, and I know that Jamie Richards was really good, Brent, but I think Mark Walker is one out of the box. He proved that in Singapore. He arrived back here in Australasia. He smashed the record in New Zealand for amount of winners trained in, in the season. And he's been able to prove that he can set up a, a structure and a training regime where he can get results wherever he goes. And you can see it in the North and the South Island. And now you can see it in in Australia at Cranbourne with Benny Gleeson doing a wonderful job. So they've got a formula that's been successful. Look out if they get more numbers and more opportunities. 
yeah, there's no doubt they've moved towards, yeah, that, you look at that model that, you know, Kira Maher, uh, Annabelle Nisham, even Chris Waller mm. have implemented in Australia. We have a multi, you know, a multi-based approach, you know, multiple, uh, Horses in multiple cities, and, yep. and and in this case, we're talking about across two countries. It's not the first time it's happened for New Zealand. We've seen that before. You know, trials like Graham Graham Rogerson and stuff in the past. I've been able to just sort of you know work between the two, that yeah across the Tasman pretty much to try to work these things out. And I I think yeah it it is a really interesting approach, and it'd be really uh, I guess it gives them more flexibility. I guess the other thing too about Tiako, which probably gives them a bit more confidence, is the amount of extra money that's in New Zealand racing. So the day-to-day winners are going to be earning a lot more money for them yep. because of the boost that's come along because of the New Zealand tab deal that Entain did last year. So what that gives them is a little bit more resources, I suppose, and a little bit more confidence going forward that that day-to-day prize money is going to allow them to expand and grow their footprint. And you know, David Ellis, as you know, is an ambitious man. He's got you know grand ideas about what he wants to do. And I think, you know, what 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 Mick said before was really interesting in the regard that they will be punters types of horses, because I think what we'll see is we'll see the best of their horses here. And, and that'll be really great to see because they'll be at the pointy end of those good races. And those colors are so distinct. They stand out so much in a race and they'll become you know, a regular fixture in Australia's best races, as well as in New Zealand's best races. I won't put you on the spot now, but I've got some homework for you, Brennan, Mickey Gannon. Next week, we'll discuss the top five syndicators in the country from a results point of view. I think it's fascinating. So you've got proven thoroughbreds, Derby Thoroughbreds, Australian Bloodstock, First Light Racing, just to name a few. So I'm looking forward to digging deep in, into into that. And then you've got Patriot Bloodstock who go um, and and look at it from a different point of view, mail, mailbag Bloodstock when they go for tried horses. So we might dissect that um, next week for the Wednesday debate. We need to take the news. It's 8.35. Gareth Hall, Bren O'Brien from thestraight.com.au. And Mickey Gannon from The Great Tip-Off with you on this Wednesday morning. 0499 736 736 to join our conversation. Live across Australia on SEN Track, Giddy Up with Gareth Hall. Welcome back to Giddy Up. This is the Wednesday debate. It surprised me a little bit who um, uh, was the leading vendor for, which is a few text messages coming through, Gareth. What's the vendor, which is the person selling the horses at the Magic Million sale? The leading vendor was Sedge and Ho Stud. I thought it would be a race between two in Arrowfield and Newgate. Did that surprise you, Brent? Uh, it was a great result. It was a brilliant sale for for. Said you know they they had a great amazing run of results and I think they won by correct me if I'm wrong about twenty thousand dollars or something they beat Newgate so it was a very close run thing in the end so um, yeah no I think it was a it was a really quite a, an interesting uh, yeah week for Said you know they had they had lots of million dollar lots John Camilleri's horses sold really well um, yeah and Peter O'Brien does a terrific job up there and so it was it was a great result for them given they had a lot fewer horses than the likes of you know Newgate and Arrowfield and so um, I think it was a a bit of a sporting prize share between the Hunter Valley farms. They were quite happy to uh, pat each other on the back for that. And yeah, a little bit of a, a win for, a, I won't say an underdog because they're quite well resourced Edge and Ho, but certainly in terms of numbers, they, 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 they don't have the quite the same numbers as the likes of Newgates and Arrowfield. I read an interesting article on the straight.com.au website and also on your social media platforms. And it reads, well, the headline reads, punters plead for industry voice on federal government gambling reform. The federal government has been accused of ignoring a recommendation in a par- parliamentary report into online wagering that calls for consultation with Australian punters. Richard Irvine, who will join me for a special interview oh, well, next week, I'm having a chat to him, um, says a well-known advocate and campaigner for punters' rights was denied a request to meet with Communications Minister Michelle Rowland following the release of uh, the You Win Some, You Lose More report last year after an exhaustive public inquiry. The, I think, 66 different industries had a meeting with the minister, but none of the punters were interviewed, Brent. Are the punters being heard enough? Do you agree with Richard? Are you concerned about this? I think it's fair enough that you know, punters reps like Richie Irvine you know, might feel a bit aggrieved about not getting a seat at the table, at least a, a phone call, or at least some form of discussion around this. You know, Richie's been across this issue for a very long time now, across the board, not just this issue, but across the board with this punting side of things. It has become a voice for the punters and a more, I guess, you know, I guess the campaigning type, type way. And I, I guess, you know, 
for not to even get an acknowledgement from the minister, but from like, you know, one of her underlings to pretty much say, yeah, thanks for your interest, you know, noted, please move on. I, I thought it was pretty ordinary. I think if you're going to talk to 66 different parties involved in this decision-making around the reforming of particularly around advertising and promotion of wagering, um, the punters should have been one of them, no matter who it was, whether it was a professional punter group, whether it's uh, uh, whoever it was. Like, then you've got to seek the customers' opinions in this, and I think that's really important. And, and there are struggles in the, uh, yeah, there are issues in this industry. I think, yeah, we need a fair and level playing field state by state um, for aspects of minimum bet limits and, and and we ugly need a national regulator in this space. Now, I'm not an extra regulator in racing. You know, I don't know if we need an extra le- le- level of regulation, but the, the challenge is there's such a difference between what goes on between all the states and territories, mm. you know, with all the things that goes on. And punters are having, a, who are the customers of the sport, are having a really hard time of, you know, accounts either being shut down, yeah, money not being paid out. We we spoke about an issue before Christmas where 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 sort of bookmaker basically you know went dark, disappeared, and got sold off. And I haven't heard whether those people have been paid back in the new year or not. So, um, yeah, I I think that there's you know there's a real sense that in this discussion where we talk about the importance of turnover and how it drives ninety five percent of um, revenue for the racing industry, we're not having this discussion with punters. And I think it's it's a it's a pretty for reflection on the overall state of how we view punters and where they sit. Well, it got out of hand a, a little bit during COVID when everyone's wanted to start up a, an online bookmaking um, organisation. Then all of a sudden they've changed the rules and regulations and it's got extremely hard for them to make some money. And then they might be cutting some corners and then the punters are getting left behind. So they needed to have a better, and I think it caught them by surprise a little bit, but they need to take control of that landscape once again, because I think they've lost control. Um, at the moment, Mickey Gannon. So I think for the minimum bet laws, that's paramount because it, that's only probably affects two or 3% of punters regarding the minimum bet laws. But it's important because there's a lot of turnover that happens with those punters, Mickey Gannon, across the three codes. They they, they need to organise that one tote, um, especially for the two minor codes because it's just pointless having a betting on... Um, the minor codes on the tote these days because there's just not enough liquidity in the in the in the pools, Mickey Gannon. So there's plenty to work out. It's a it's an important time in in racing, especially with this wagering landscape. Yeah, there needs to be change for a number of reasons, which you, you, you've both touched on really really well. For the punters to protect the punters and and to continue turnover. The issue we have as punters is who do you choose to be? You know, represent the punter and Richie does does a fantastic job, but Richie's Richie. He's, he's a lone wolf, so to speak. He's, he's not under any jurisdiction. So we've got to reverse engineer this problem. And and this is maybe, I'm sure Richie's done done plenty of work here, but think about it. We need turnover. If punters are affected, turnover decreases. Who is affected most by decreased turnover? It's got to be the racing jurisdictions. They've got to put their hands up and say, we need a Richard Irvine to come in and he's going to represent the punter and they need to put him forward to parliament because it's not going to be a punter. They're never going to let a punter come and have this conversation. So they've got to take Richie or someone like Richie, mm-hmm. put him forward because they're the ones having these conversations and then he's a chance. But at the moment, he's no chance because my as pet said, hate just mo- Yeah. My pet hate, sorry, it doesn't sorry, matter Dave. if it's a racing it's, 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 club or it's a jurisdiction. Yeah. I'd love to dig deep and we might do that next week as well, Brent, on who's actually on these boards when it comes to racing. Like, um, the age demographic of boards in racing, I'd love to work that out. And I, I reckon if I was a betting man, it would be 50 plus um, around that. Hey, Jay, just, just on that though, they should be sh- shaking in their boots of turnover dropping. Like they should yeah. be genuinely, genuinely. I think they are. And, so, and getting someone like Richard Irvine involved as a punter is only going to increase turnover. It's not going to decrease turnover. Punters yeah. will leave if, if things keep going the way they're going. They need to get someone like him involved. Yeah. So just just quick one, I'll jump in there, Gareth, just very quickly. But I think the other thing to realise is the 10% drop in, drop in turnover has occurred at the same time that um, the, the the percentages have gone up like 5% in terms of what you're getting mm. back. The margin, the margin has increased in betting, and it's, it's harder to get your money back. And yeah. the, the two just aren't like to say, oh, it's just a post-COVID lull. I think it's completely naive from for people to say that. I think it's a really key aspect. It's much more expensive to punt now than it was two or three years ago because of point of consumption tax and because of the other sort of taxes that have creeped into that. And I think they need to talk to punters about this. It's really important because that's the lifeblood in terms of the, the financial lifeblood of the industry. That'll dry up. If it keeps going away, it's going. 
There'll be no yeah. there'll be no profitability in punting, and we'll all be losing our money by race five every Saturday. And well, I think racing, it's a, it's oh, the indictment. world in the woke is getting out of control. Like it, the, the taxes on buying a beer these days is about twelve dollars to go and get a bloody pot. Like oh, they're taking mate. away our freedom, the freedom to enjoy yourself and entertain. And they've got to have a hard look at themselves because they're going to have a problem with, um, um, like well, it's going to stop I, I, people I'll say doing this, Jay. What I'll, tell you, I'll tell you what. In our industry, here's a problem. They are the bookmakers are getting a bigger say than the punters, yeah, and that's a significant, significant problem. When they wanted to get rid of cigarettes, they didn't go ask Benson Hedges their opinion. No, no. Well, what are we doing here? No, it's an interesting one. I've got to take a break. We'll come back and wrap up the Wednesday debate. Live across Australia on SEN Track. Giddy up with Gareth Hall. Welcome back to Giddy Up. Gareth Hall with you, Bren O'Brien, and also Mickey Gaddon for the Wednesday debate. Bren O'Brien from thestraight.com.au and Mickey Gaddon, the one and the only from the great tip off. Well done to Rooster from Bendigo. Sejinho Stud was the correct answer for the leading. Vendor there at the recent Magic Million sale. We'll take the boys just after nine o'clock as well. So just before the nine o'clock news, when we talk to the government, what's the biggest decision that they need to get right for the future of the wagering landscape? Is it allowing betting companies to continue to have bonus bets, Brent? Is it to allow them to continue to advertise on certain platforms? Because it looks like that they, that that right might be taken away from them. Stations like SEN Track and other stations that concentrate on racing are okay, but other organisations, and especially if they like stop the advertising on social media, that could be a disaster for, for, for racing. It could. I think the incentive stuff's probably the key, Gareth, actually. I think that if they stop bonus bets and they stop deposit matches and all those type of things, those, those I guess, vehicles for engagement that they use, it'll have a massive effect on the racing industry. And the, and the, the projected effects are anything between hundred million to five hundred million dollars a year for the Australian race industry. And 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 some of those are up to a billion dollars a year. That would be absolutely disastrous for the industry because there's so much in that free bets money at the moment. And there's so much in that deposit match money at the moment. So I think for me that's that's the real crucial part. Advertising will be tweaked. It's gonna happen. Um wh- to what extent we don't know. We don't believe it'll affect racing, but we'll see when the federal government comes out and and, and talks of, you know, gambling's on the nose politically at the moment and they're they're pretty keen for reform so we'll see what comes out when uh, Michelle Rowland steps out in the next few weeks and tells us what we're going to expect when do you think we'll have that decision from Michelle because usually you have these inquiries and these um, investigations and these studies that take place and it takes a million years to get to get the answers and the report to be released I think it'll be February. I'm, I'm tipping it'll be the next month. We'll, we'll hear something about this. Yeah. Um, it's unlikely to be pushed back any further, but I guess we just have to wait and see. I mean, yeah, we don't know how these political things work. Um, um, the, very, the tragic circumstances around Peter Murphy's passing in, in December. Um, she was a key part of this as well. So I think there's a, there's a few complications in this. I, I would think it'll probably be the next couple of months, but we'll just have to wait and see. 0499736736. We'll have a chat about Macau coming to an end, racing in that jurisdiction was announced yesterday or the day before that there'll be no more racing in Macau, which is sad as well. So we'll discuss that, plus your text messages, 0499 736 736, coming up after the news. This is Giddy Up in the Wednesday Debate, thanks to Bet365. Live across Australia on SEN Track, Giddy up with Gareth Hall. Welcome back to Giddy Up, Gareth Hall with you on this Wednesday morning. This is the Wednesday debate. Mickey Gannon, what a sensational debut from the great tip-off and also Brett O'Brien from straight.com.au. Brett Macau Racing, you worked a lot in the Asian racing jurisdictions and, and the landscape there. You were part of a organization that covered Asian racing I don't like it's no surprise that Macau stopped racing but it's sad for world racing because once upon a time and our our man David Taggart used to tell us like that jurisdiction used to be thriving once upon a time um but from I think it's April this year is it that it'll come to an end yeah 
the April 1st this year, the uh, the government's ended the concession that the, the Cow Jockey Club had to run racing in the state. Look, the, the concern is, from, from, from my perspective, if you can't make racing work in a, a uh, island full of punters, how are you going to make it work in a broader sense? And I, I think there's, there was a couple of comments from the Macau government which were kind of interesting. It referenced the Singapore decision, which sort of, I guess, gave them a little bit of a... Um, you know, a little bit of permission to make that call to say, hey, elsewhere in Asia, this and they also referenced racing being a colonial sport. And I, I, I think that there's racing has an image going forward across the world of being this old fashioned, you know, English style sport. And I think in that, you know, obviously it's thriving in Hong Kong, which is not that far from Macau. Um, yeah, I think it just points to a, a broader challenge with that racing's got globally to try to remain relevant. And again, if it can't work in that environment, and there's reasons for why Macau's not working, the dysfunction of the, of the club and the way things have worked over time is not being great. But if you can't make it work there, I mean, where can you make it work? And I think that there's, yeah, as I said, it points to a few other broader issues that racing's facing. I couldn't believe like how much money they were losing per year, like 300 odd million. Yeah, well, I think, you know, I, I think, you know, they were getting, I don't know, the numbers were something like 500 people to the racetrack, you know. I mean, you can't, you know, in, yeah. a, in a place like that, how do you, how do you get, uh, how do you make money out of that out, out of that situation? I think, you know, there's something much more significant within that organisation, the way things are done, than just, oh, COVID came along and people stopped going to the races. But, uh, yeah, I, I, they're, they're businesses. They need to justify their business. And they also take up enormous real estate in very densely populated areas. And that's probably where Macau and Singapore have very similar um, you know, situations, I suppose, where you sit there and go, that big piece of open land that's used as a race course, that could be used for housing development. We're seeing that in Australia with Rose Hill yeah. likely being sold off and with co- co- uh, yeah, comments around Sandown. So I think it's, yeah, as I said, there's a few other sort of tendrils flowing in there and I think there's a few little warning signs there to sort of look at for racing broader. Yeah, it is sad, Mickey, because as Brent points out, it is a warning sign because you've gone from a, a sport that was was flying in those jurisdictions in Singapore and, and also in, in Macau. And then all of a sudden I wants to turn up. The government hates it. And before you know it, it's finished. Yeah. And as an Australian racing, um, you know, Australian racing landscape needs to look into why, why that happened over there and make sure it doesn't happen here. It's a, it's a good lesson for us to learn from. Um, Bren, you've got some, you've made, um, during the Gold Coast Magic Millions, you're able to interview some, heavy hitters in the sport of thoroughbred racing, but you've got an interesting article that will be, I think, released today on the straight.com.au platforms with an interview with, I think, one of the most fascinating administrators that I've come across since oh, in racing and since he's since he's taken over the tenure as the top job at Racing Victoria, he's had a few ups and downs and he's had a few challenges over the time. And um, to be honest, there was talk that he might not have his job at, towards the back end of last year. The mail was strong by some heavy hitters as well, but he's been able to survive and get through that. Um, and I speak of Andrew Jones and you had a chat to him recently. So what did you make of that interview with him and what can we expect in today's article? I'll give Andrew Jones his credit. He was very generous with his time. We had yep. a coffee up on the Gold Coast, uh, had a chat on the record and off the record, as you often do as, as a journo. Um, and yeah, I mean, it was a really interesting insight into someone who has become Certainly among participants, and I'm not saying in a more broader sense, but certainly among participant groups, a divisive figure. Um, some people think he's doing a pretty good job and piloting forward in difficult times, and others would prefer someone else do the job. Um, yeah, he's a he's a really interesting guy, Andrew. He's obviously a very intelligent guy, former sale of the century quiz champion, I found out okay. going through my going through my he's he's a very smart guy. Like so there's no doubt about that. He's challenges to try to work the politics of the racing industry and work that through. And that's what the article sort of deals with, I guess. Who is the person we're dealing with here? We know the big figures in Australian racing. We know Peter Volandis, his personality over time and, and how things have evolved. You know, who is Andrew Jones and what makes him tick is kind of interesting from the context of those trying to understand mm. where um, yeah, w- where he's taking racing and, and some of the decisions he made. He doesn't seem to be too worried about people's opinions of him and they think he shouldn't have been in the job. He's just more worried what, what he says is the biggest bigger challenge of growing racing. And so it's an interesting insight to him in that article and hopefully you know, people can get a so I look through that, not from a necessarily a sympathetic view, poor old Andrew Jones, but just a bit of a understanding about, you know, how he thinks and why he thinks the way he does, and probably the the challenges he needs to confront in the next few months to continue to do what he needs to do and see off a massive yeah. challenge from participants, you know, one participant group in particular that want to see him out of a job. I think the the situation with Andrew Jones is that 
and you would have talked to him on a few occasions in that interview and you sat down with him. And when you sit down with him on a one-on-one basis, he does have some pretty good ideas. And I know he comes across and, and he probably made the mistake when I interviewed him a few weeks or a few months back and I asked him about the participants. And um, I think if he could have that time again, he would. And he worded it saying, well, I don't really care what they say. I'm going to do it my way because I think this is the best in the best interest of the sport of thoroughbred racing. What Andrew Jones probably needs to get right in this period is that he's got some good ideas, but to get good ideas in the racing game is that you still need to work with the racing participants and you need to get their confidence. And it is a different ball game when it comes to administration and you're working with stakeholders in racing because you've got different stakeholders who have different self-interests from the punters, from the breeders to the owners, to the trainers and the jockeys and, um, and there's so many industries within the one industry, if you know what I mean. So I think that's his biggest challenge is that, okay, then you've got some great ideas, but try and sell that dream to the participants. Say, okay, then I want to go here and I want to go there. And these are the reasons why I want to do that. But please come with me. Trust me. And I think if you can get that right, then it will be a success. But it doesn't matter how good your ideas are. And what you, what you think and, and what you're trying to do, if you lose the confidence within the industry that you're trying to lead, then they are going to take you on. And then that develops bad energy and then no one gets anywhere. And that's the challenge that he has, Mickey Gannon, to sell his dream. Spot on, Jake. Um, he didn't come across as endearing in the interview he did with you. And it was about me and it wasn't about us as a racing industry. If he can manage to flip the script, I think he's on to a winner. Because I do believe he, he does have the ability to do the job. And what do you think, Brent? Do you think that he's do you think that he can turn around certain organizations and individuals in the sport to get them on site to go with him here? Or do you think that it is a battle that he's 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 walking uphill? It's not a question of capability. I think he's capable of doing yeah. that. It's about whether he's got the perspective to do that. And that's yeah. the challenge, whether he understands the importance of that. And you know, not being a racing background person coming into this industry it's 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 difficult you've got to you know adapt yourself to the circumstances that you find yourself in and work with it he seems to think if he can grow the pie everyone will be happy i've been in racing long enough to know if you may grow the pie but no but people still won't be happy they'll still want more of the pie so i think the challenge is for him to to sort of get get that different slightly different view about the need to work with participants and some people are never going to like you and that's fine but if you can get the majority of people behind you there's 14 different participant groups within victoria in racing, right? It's a very, it's a very fragmented market. You need to work that. You need to be more politician than executive on occasions. And I think that's probably Andrew's challenge going forward. I said, capability is not the issue. I think it's the ability to perspective, I guess get that perspective to know that this is the way the industry works and you can't just tell people what to do. Okay. They need to be brought with you along the journey. And the biggest yeah, challenge- as a lady, as a lady, you can't be a dictator. No. You've got to listen to the people around you. You have to. And when you come on and say, I don't care about other people's, other people's opinions, it's very hard no, to turn around for I, that. I think, to, I think Andrew Jones, and he admitted that, I think if he had his time again, he would have said something a little bit different. But it doesn't matter right. what who the administrator is. The biggest challenge that Andrew Jones has got is that, so if he's got certain people offside, then they will go to the racing minister and put pressure on the racing minister to get rid of him. But the racing minister is needs to be Andrew Jones's best friend because if he hasn't got the government on side, then they can't make important decisions to help the industry regarding tax parities and revenue streams back into the game, point of consumption tax and so on. And that's where Peter Volandis was successful in the early part of his tenure. I've got no doubt about that at Racing New South Wales. The two people that he got on his, on his side straight away that were powerful power brokers in the state of New South Wales that had influence with government were one Alan Jones and two Paul Massara. And they were on Volandi's side. I don't know if they're on his side right now, um, Brem, which makes it interesting. Pete was was lucky to have the rugby league um, relationships already established as well. Yeah. So very, very helpful. He was able to work closely with the New South Wales government. And for mine to be a successful administrator, you're only as good as your government, Bren. Because they no, do dictate that, Yeah, terms. you have to work with that. And as you said before, like the relationship with John Massaro was absolutely crucial yep. for PVL getting what getting done what he needed to get done early on the journey. And who does John Massaro represent? The breeders, who is Andrew Jones most at loggerheads with? Well, you know, all the way around, Jonathan Munns, who, who is a significant breeder and part yep. of the owners, um, yep. yeah, heads the owners association. So I think that's a challenge that they've got is to try to, you know, work that relationship through. And as I said, I don't think it's a, you know, when he, when Andrew Jones says he doesn't care, about that relationship. I think 
what he's trying to say is, um, yeah, I'm not trying to put words in his mouth, but I think what he was trying to say was, I have to be focused on what I'm focused on. But the challenge is, it's a people sport. As much as a, as much as it's a sport about horses on the track and everything else, yeah. this is a people sport. You go to the Gold Coast last week, Gareth, and you talk to people all week. It's all about people, and people need to feel involved. And I had some very um, senior members of 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 the racing industry say some pretty honest things about Andrew Jones to me, which I think, you know, if Andrew knew, maybe he doesn't care about that. What those people think about him, but it's not a good sign that there is a, a, that level of. I guess, um, displeasure with the way that he's doing things yeah. at the moment and, and how, what his executive are doing at the moment. And it's a broader challenge because if that, if Racing Victoria can't do what it needs to do, then the industry doesn't go forward and we, we're we stuck in this cycle of that plus everything that's going on at a national level. It's not good for the racing in, in general. You need to sit at the table because they're, they're smart people. There's a lot of successful power brokers in the sport of thoroughbred racing. Like Jonathan Munns is a billionaire that's had so much success in business. And, he's, and, he, and he invests a lot of money in the sport of thoroughbred racing as well. So um, they need to sit down and then try and work it. So what do you think? What can I do better then um, to, to Jonathan? Right. And Andrew can take things on board, but they need to come to an a, agreement where it's um, we're on the same page because the industry is not big enough not to be working together and, and heading downstream together. Um, so I think Brent hit the nail on the head though, G. It's, it's part politician, part executive. You're in the people management game now. You're not just a, a standalone decision yeah. maker. Time will tell. Um, but anyway, that's been a lot of fun today, boys. So the straight.com.au, you've got some big stories breaking, Andrew. And um, oh, not Andrew, 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 Andrew Jones, the new, the new CEO of um, the straight.com.au. <laughs> I mean, Brent, you got some important um, stories breaking today, including that Andrew Jones interview so looking forward to that mate and um enjoy tassie are you there for the launceston hobart cups you'll be front and front and center wouldn't you i'll definitely be there for the launceston cup the hobart cup unfortunately clashes with the english classic sale so i'm sort of balancing my local uh cup with that so i don't know if i'll be at hobart or, or english classic at this stage so we've got to work between the two but um yeah i, I would love to be i love going to the hobart cup it's one of my favorite days of the year um and launceston's great because it comes off the back of the tassie sale which is my favorite sale of the year because yeah. it, it's just like no other yielding sale in australia and maybe that's just the you know the <laughs> the mad bloodstock mind in me but i do love the way that the tassie sale evolves and also the quality of horses that have come over there given the price that they're paid off over the years so yeah that that'd be my next couple of months working through the sales and going to a few key race meetings i thought the mccallics now were the biggest name in tassie racing after their success at the magic million sale of course selling the half to think about it for nine hundred thousand dollars their their philly bike seed in excel out of galloway girl who was some story for six hundred odd thousand but there's no doubt about that Scotty Brunton's on the sidelines these days. There's no Mystic Journey. Peter Staples has retired. So Bren O'Brien has become the biggest name in, in Tassie racing. Good on you, Bren. Hello, and Mickey, you enjoy your day, mate. We might catch up with you a little later on for Bag of Tips. Respect you, surely. Thanks, Bren. Thanks, Mickey, Mickey Gannon from the great tip-off. Bren O'Brien, you can read all of his stuff on the straight.com.au website. 17 minutes past nine in the east.